From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia on WABE. I'm Patricia Murphy. The General Assembly has gaveled in for a special session on redistricting, but Democrats are accusing Republicans of failing to follow a federal judge's order to draw legislative maps that comply with the Voting Rights Act. We'll hear from a veteran of the last redistricting session about what to expect next. I'm Bill Nygut. The state Senate held a vote to put on record member support for Israel's war against Hamas. It's a political test Republicans hoped would reveal deep divisions over Israel among Democratic colleagues. I'm Greg Bluestein. Two powerhouse governors face off tonight in our own backyard. Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom will debate in Alpharetta, further proving that Georgia is the center of the political universe. I talked to the moderator, Fox News' Sean Hannity, about the matchup. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Well, Greg, we got to spend some time together at the State House and State Senate under the Gold Dome. It was just a warm, welcoming feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Lawmakers loved being back right Everyone before Everyone was just so holidays. happy to be there, but <laughs> squanched between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, um, Bill, it actually wasn't that warm and welcoming. I mean, people were extremely friendly, of course, but you definitely <laughs> had the sense that nobody wanted to be there. Well, nobody really ever wants to be at special sessions, obviously. And I, you know... I spent 19 years covering the Georgia General Assembly, and uh, I'm very happy you both go out down there, and I get to read your reports. I get to listen to you talk about this, the uh, General Assembly on the show. Um, all, one of the things that I remember, Patricia, I'm curious about it from your point of view, is walking those marble floors in the hallways for weeks on end. Just not good for your feet, Patricia. You never had I've that problem? I've never thought about it like that. Oh. No, I just find it very grand and majestic. I actually love I love the state capitol. I love the U.S. capitol. You're not going to find a person who gets more into pomp and circumstance than this kid right here. <laughs> so I was happy to be there. And lawmakers, Greg, are happy to be there once they're elected. It's the general session. That's what they're there to do. But this week had a definite feeling of... Um, what was described to me in the hallway as a recurring nightmare. Yeah, and there's good reason for that, Patricia, yeah. because Republicans feel like the maps they drew in 2021 should have been upheld by the court, not tossed out. And Democrats who fought to uh, toss out those maps are not happy with what we're seeing with the legislative overhauls that put several Democratic incumbents in jeopardy. So no one's really happy right now. All right. Well, well we're happy to be here talking about it on this podcast. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, we are going to now welcome our in-studio guest right now, John Porter. He is a uh, former senior advisor to Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. The reason that is especially useful for today's conversation is that uh, John was in the room during the last redistricting session when these maps were built. Um, He has not been involved uh, in this current round of redistricting, this special session, but he's going to be able to tell us what happens behind the scenes? Because it it can be a very opaque process. John Porter, welcome to Politically Georgia. Thank you for having me. I'm hoping I can provide some good context that's uh, important and valuable to your listeners. Okay, terrific. So we're going to go ahead and just get started here with our conversation. When we have these maps, typically for reporters and also for just members of the general public, our whole audience, they're just presented as a bit of a fait accompli. They are, the maps have been redrawn, uh, typically after public hearings, but generally behind closed doors. So help us understand what happens after the hearings, but before the maps are drawn. Well, 
a lot of people ask, well, why, is these, why are these maps put out so far in advance? And I'll say there's three reasons for that. One, it's a very top, top-down process, both in the House and the Senate. Um, so it's controlled mostly by the Speaker, uh, the Lieutenant Governor, and you know, leadership in the Senate. So uh, they and their lieutenants and whoever they choose to bring in the room are really drawing the maps. There's some uh, perfunctory discourse with the rank and file, but it's really being made, the decisions there. So the reason that these maps get put out early is to put a stake in the ground. It's, it's the, the leadership's way of saying, this is the map. And that does two things. One, it gives these maps some time to linger, to hear and flush out what the arguments are, but also it puts these individual members or someone who's going to be arguing against the map on their heels. So now there's a public map. Now, if you don't like it, whether you are a Republican in Savannah or a Democrat in Macon, whatever, you've got to make a compelling argument to say why this map needs to be changed. So it's the first mover advantage. Um, so I would say, yes, it's, it's, it's heavily influenced by the top down and those maps are released. Um, but to basically say this is, this is what leadership wants, um, if you want to change this, then, then you're going to have to make a compelling argument not only to us, but you're going to have to make a compelling argument to the public and to the courts as to why this is okay. I think you see the House and the Senate maps out, obviously, right, right early uh, because those are done internally with the House and the Senate. The congressional map I don't think has been released. If it not ha- yet. If it, We're okay. expecting it tomorrow. So, and, and the reason is that is a function of a, a three-legged stool, right? That is a function of negotiation with the House, the Senate, and the governor's office. So, um, you know, it's easy to produce a map that's kind of done internally, but now when you have three parties, whether just the one being the internal power, party power structure in, in each chamber, um, it takes a little bit more time. John, I'm fascinated by this peek behind the curtains and the atmosphere of the legislature because you, working for then-Lieutenant Governor uh, Jeff Duncan, you must have been constantly hounded by nervous lawmakers who understandably wanted to know, A, if they were going to, how, how much their districts were going to be changed, and B, if they were going to be drawn out entirely of the districts they had represented. Yeah, I mean, this is their lifeblood, right? So without, uh, without if you're an elected official, being elected <clears throat> is your lifeblood. And so this is the one chance in 10 years where your lot, so to speak, is, is going to be decided. There are some that are very, very active and are very, very concerned. They just want something small here or there because they may have a relative there or a donor there or something to that, to that nature. But there are others that are more reserved and say to themselves, look, I'm going to let the chips fall where they may, and then I'm going to just be really good in that district. I know my district's not going to change a whole heck of a lot, but it's going to change a little bit. Um, the, the, the guys and gals with confidence in themselves, you can kind of see that, right? Confidence, it, egos. The, 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 confidence, the confident ones are, 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 are usually pretty quiet. The ones that are a little more insecure, either political, politically or feel more vulnerable, are definitely working the phones. They're calling the LG. They're calling the governor's office to talk to the LG. They're calling, you know, they're, they're calling uh, this, the appropriations chair. So they're, they're working the phones hard and they're saying this is what they want and they'll have a compelling argument about this is what I want and I can and this is how it can be done. I can give this up to them and them and we can do this here and, and they'll have an argument. And does that backfire sometimes? Yes. Any stories you can share about that? Right. I mean, look, I mean, it's, it's politics, right? And so it, it can because then you've tipped your hand, right? And if, if, if you're a, a, a rank and file member and you've got, you know, some friction maybe with leadership and then you've told them what you wanted, um, then maybe you don't get that. I think maybe you get the opposite. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. You. No, no. I think that may very well be one of the reasons that right now legislators who we've invited to come join us on politically, George, have said, mm, let's hold off well, <laughs> because they don't want to tip their hands on the radio, which is being heard across the state. <laughs> the, the, they, the, the primary reason uh, – Th- th- that is probably a component of it. But the primary reason is they don't want to put anything on the record that can be used to jeopardize their party. The legal ab- ab- That's right. right. So- and that's why I want to be very clear that, you know, I have not had anything to do. I didn't even have any conversations. I think when, when, when Patricia called me and told me that Shelly Eccles was the reapportionment uh, chairperson, I didn't even, she, she made mm-hmm. me that known to me. So uh, it's more likely than not the council's advised them 
no public station. You know, I, if I, 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 if I oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. I, I was, I was just going to say, so uh, a few things also go into this, along with the motivations and the personalities and potential grudges. Um, All com- three. Computers and lawyers. Uh, yes. And I remember when these particular maps were being drawn, uh, Democrats were saying, well, we will be challenging these in court. And Republicans I spoke to, especially on the House side, were so, were very confident that there would not be a successful legal challenge because there are lawyers weighing in on these maps at the same time as well to say, do we think this will violate the Voting Rights Act or do we think it won't? Um, is this? Were you surprised that these maps got uh, got caught up in a in a challenge that has now sent them back into being redrawn? Um, I'm surprised in the outcome. Okay. I'm not surprised in the process. So what I mean by that is uh, I think we all operated uh, under the assumption that this was going to find its way into litigation one way or the other. Um, I'm a little bit surprised by the judge's decision, but um, again, I'm not surprised in the process. I think those that are telling you uh, on the record or off that they feel good about the process is that they're, they're t- toeing the line. Of course they have to say that, right? Um, because your conversation, whether it's off the record with respect to uh, your, your political <clears throat> journalism ethics, could also be part of the political record. Um, so, you know, I think they're just telling you that. I mean, I think everyone in the building, at least then, knew uh, this is going to be litigated. Uh, and then you can have varying opinions about as to how the outcome of that litigation would would break down. To that point, John, there are a lot of Republican lawmakers who are very nervous about texting anything right now for that very reason. They, they, they worry that it could be subpoenaed. They could draw a reporter into that subpoena to have to then go testify about or, or, or produce documents about what there, is happening. There is, um, so just kind of a little background. There's yeah. very little privileged information. I mean, um, there's really, there's very, very few places that are, are privileged. Um, all this information is um is, is discoverable. And um, Brian Tyson was kind of the lead counsel for us. I'm, I'm assuming he's still working in that role there. Okay. Uh, that's a wise choice. Um, he hammers home early and hard that uh, anything you put in, in writing and, and, on, and, and on paper is assumed that that's going to show up in a, in a court filing. So he does a good job at that. You know, John, I was thinking as you talked about the behind the scenes of this uh, last redistricting that you were part of, I go all the way back. I said I've been there for a long time. Mm -hmm. I I remember very vividly when Roy Barnes was governor and had the 2000 redistricting session following uh, the census. And, And, of course, Governor Barnes at that point with the Democratic majority thought that he was building a future for a democratic state that would last literally for generations. And part of doing that, as, as you um, may very well know, was creating these multi-member districts. And um, what that did was really throw a lot of incumbents uh, together. And I remember really clearly when you talk about lawmakers coming to you, you know, asking, can you please help me or whatever, uh, Bobby Kahn, his chief of staff, was being <laughs> barraged daily by members of his own party who were pleading with him <laughs> to save their districts in one way or another. I mean, the pressure gets to be, can get to be really, really intense on the people who are drawing those maps and responsible for the fates, in some cases, of incumbents. Absolutely. Again, like I said, if you win or lose on an issue, a political issue, on the floor, um, it, it, maybe you have a wound to lick. You you win or lose on your district, you may be going home. Um, for some of these guys or these men and women, um, this is um, this is their career, right? I mean, so there's a lot at stake. Just as you or I would be concerned about a potential promotion or a um, to kind of draw an analogy, uh, a promotion or a um, performance review. I mean, this is what they're lobbying for. I mean, it's, it's, it's yes, intense. And, and, and look, you know, and with that, you will see, I mean, again, I'm not inside the room and I don't, I really don't know what the inner workings go, but there will be some, there'll be some scars from this process. Yes. Mm-hmm. Some folks aren't going to get what they want. Yep. And, and these two, I know, and Bill, I, 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 again, we don't know each other very well, but there's going to be some residual scar tissue that lingers over into session. And so that'll be interesting to see. And we saw it even yesterday, Patricia. I mean, we, there are some deep wounds already. Um, two Republicans were drawn into the same district. 
six House members were drawn to the same district. And of course, we're talking about the two Senate Democrats whose districts were dramatically changed. Yes. And it may be a surprise to listeners or people who are not intimately involved in this process, how front of mind uh, the state house and the state Senate districts are. That's what all of this energy, all of this angst is about. The congressional maps that make the national news are a little bit of an afterthought, but they're all. it's also going to be hugely important here in Georgia because Judge Jones did say, I want to see a new majority black congressional district. Um, now, John, as far as the congressional seat goes, let's talk a little bit about the process the last time around, because I remember that two Republicans were very unhappy with these maps, um, Andrew Clyde and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, I haven't spoken with either one of them. Uh, I'll take your word that uh, we reported on it. Okay, so I'll take your word. I'll take I'll take your word for that. Uh, Look, you know the um, the 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 members of Congress. um, Each individual member has a varying level of uh, interaction with the state legislature, and if I was to give some advice to some, I would say that you know. There is some big brother, little brother syndrome there sometimes. And who's the big brother? Uh, well, it depends. In this situation, I would argue that the big brother is the the, the folks down at the Gold Dome because mm-hmm. they hold the keys to the, the kingdom. And so uh, in some cases, there's a really good relationship. In some cases, there's uh, a, a big brother that's been bullying a little brother. And um, what, what the folks of the legislature need to remember is now that the – I mean, what, what the folks in Congress need to remember is now the folks in the legislature uh, are, are, are drawing their districts. So um, – you know, I think you got to be humble, hat in hand, come and make all those visits and make those asks. And maybe that's been done. Again, I haven't been a yep. part of this process, mm-hmm. but um, sometimes it's not done. John, I want to f- refresh your memory. Um, oh, after Marjorie Taylor Greene's please. district was redrawn <laughs> a couple years ago to include some majority black Cobb County precincts, um, it was still overwhelmingly Republican, but it, but it made it a little bit more difficult for her to re re-election, which, of course, she ended up winning. Uh, she bashed the new lines, as I'm quoting here, a fool's errand that was led by power-obsessed state legislators. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. So, I mean, you, so you see that play out, right? And so I think we talked about this a little bit. There is a, a interesting power dynamic between the state legislatures and, and, and our, our congresspeople in Washington. Um, and so... Uh, sometimes some want to remind others of what what stick they hold. There's so, a reason the great University of Georgia political scientist Charles Bullock calls this the most political process yeah. in America. So, yeah. So I got a text yesterday from Ed Lindsay, who we all know well, a mm-hmm. former uh, leader, uh, Republican leader in the in the state house from uh, Buckhead, um, and that now a member of the state election board. And here's the, what he sent me: question. Since the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, what were the only decennial redistricting maps that were not successfully challenged by the Justice Department or in federal court? You're nodding. You know the answer. Well, he sent it to us. He gave us oh, the you, oh, you got <laughs> yes. it, too. The 2011 maps, 2011 maps, which Wait. were drawn by Republicans and which um, got preclearance by the Obama Justice Department and was it then Senator Lindsay a part of that process? Uh, Congr- uh, Rep- Representative Lindsay. Representative yeah. 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 He was. He was. Yeah. He was. So, I mean, that tells you it's, it's, it's more likely than not, like I said, that this, these maps are going to be litigated. And um, as we're seeing, actually, an extraordinary number of these special masters, so to speak, be, mm-hmm. you know, drawing these maps. We're seeing it kind of play out in Alabama. Um, so again, you know, if you walk me back to when we first started doing this process, you know, I never would have contemplated the fact that um, the the legislature had to do something to appease a judge, or the judge was going to say, "I'm going to draw this map myself." Uh, but I did, you know, with fair, fair, fairly high degree of certainty, think this is going to be litigated. Yeah, and so uh, obviously uh, Congresswoman Lucy McBath was uh, the one who took uh, the biggest hit in the last redistricting process, and Democrats said that uh, because she moved over to the 7th and Democrats lost a seat in the process, even as black voters had increased in huge numbers, that was really the crux of their um, of their argument in those in those legal complaints about these maps. But John, um, now that uh, the two state maps are out, we're still waiting for that congressional map. Tell us what happens next. We've seen them publicly, and there are these public 
hearings. But the last time around, were y'all continuing to get lots of input from members? What should we all expect, do you think? Or what are you expecting to see? Absolutely. Um, okay. I think you to expect um, there's going to be continuing lobbying, continuing discussions. Lots of meetings had in the, uh, the LG's office and the speaker's office. Um, and some of these changes will be entertained, right? Okay. Absolutely. And there will be some marginal changes. And then uh, both parties have to consider how they want to um, justify those changes. I mean, there, there, don't kid yourself. There are Democrats walking in the back door of the lieutenant governor's office um, trying to cut deals. Yep. And um, there are probably preferred Democrats in the lieutenant governor's office that they're more willing to cut deals with than others. Um, it generates an intense amount of um, pressure on, I would say, the minority party because um, – they don't. They can't quite figure out who's shooting at who and who's holding the party line. Um, it's 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 tough. So yes, changes will be made. A lot of negotiations will be, take place. Like I said, some of these negotiations will be uh, contingent on chips that will be probably cashed in the general uh, session, regular session. Um, but you'll see changes. Interesting. Um, Patricia, you said an interesting thing when you talked about the fact a couple of things that have an impact over redistricting. Uh, uh, lawyers, but you also talked about computers. We've talked about this on the show before, and John, I'm curious about how you uh, react to this. Back in the day when maps were hand-drawn, you know, uh, they, it took forever to get the lines uh, 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 correctly uh, uh, put together in terms of population and whatever. Now when you have someone come into your office, a member who says, my district isn't working the way I'd like it to, you can create a new map on a computer in a matter of seconds. And I wonder how that's changed how the process has evolved or how it may have con may concern some lawmakers who aren't sure what the computer is going to spit out for them. Well, um, the interesting thing is, is the, um, which computer you make that change on, right? So if, you know, if the, it's privileged if you're doing it with your counsel, right? If you're doing it with an apportionment office and you save that change, that's going to be discoverable. Um, so, A, you got to make that calculation of how you're going to run that. But, B, at the end of the day, there's a finite – I mean, you're, 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 you're bordered to the east by the Atlantic Ocean, the west by the state of Alabama, and the north from by North Carolina and Tennessee. So you're just shifting deck chairs. Not The decision is not so much – um, can I make this change? It's, am I willing to make this change for this person at the expense mm -hmm. of that person? Because mm. yep. um, the change can always be made, and you can always kind of argue that this is contiguous, uh, it shares a point of interest, you know, it shares points of interest, yada, yada, yada. Uh, the question is not, can it be made? It's, uh, are, are, are we willing to make this change at the expense of, of this thing over here? And that's, um, that's really the hard question. Yeah. Okay, well, we are going to get the answer to this very complicated riddle by next Friday because that is the deadline that Judge Jones has set to get all of these maps approved and back to him. So, John Porter, we will continue to be in touch with you. Thank you so much for joining us today and giving us a real look behind the scenes. I have learned a lot today. I'm yeah. sure our listeners have as well. I appreciate it. I'm glad I was able to add some, some, some valuable context. And uh, thanks for having me. And uh, I hope you'll have me back. Uh, I enjoyed our conversation. All right. We'll count on it. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We write newsletters that deliver breaking political news to your inbox every day. So sign up at AJC.com slash newsletters for all the political news you need heading into 2024. That's AJC.com slash newsletters. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter was laid to rest yesterday in her hometown of Plains. The AJC's Martha Dalton sent along this audio postcard of the service and remembrances that took place this week. There's no place on this earth that you can find anyone that has anything bad to say about Rosalind Carter. She never said no, neither did President Carter. They were always so happy to help anybody. 
and you wouldn't find a finer couple. I'm Jennifer Olson, and I'm the CEO of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers. So we're engaging advocates uh, using the Four Kinds Network, which is her famous Four Kinds quote. There are only four kinds of people, those who are caregivers, those who were caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who need caregivers. And so I would think anybody has fit into at least one of those multiple points in their life. I'm Roger Teeple from Dooley County High School. I'm the advisor of the FFA chapter. FFA is, stands for Future Farmers of America. It means a lot. These are some students who do not get out. They're not the big athletes, but they work with their hands. They learn to be leaders in the community. My name is Elias Morelis, and I'm with Dooley County. I'm a senior, and I'm also the FFA president for my chapter. It's a great honor for me as we commemorate the memory of Ms. Carter and her family, her condolences. Um, we're here to support them. Caleb D. Green, um, sophomore at the D. Dooley County High School. It means a lot. It's a prestigious honor for all of us to gather here today in Plains. Though it is a sad occasion to honor First Lady um, Carter, but also it is a moment for us to remember all of the legacy and the way that they have paid for us to stand here today on the shoulders of all those that came before us. All right, well, thanks to the AJC's Martha Dalton for putting that package together. Bill Nygut, that gave me chills. Yeah, I, it, it, it frankly brings tears to my eyes, as did the ceremony at Glen Memorial Church when we heard that beautiful, beautiful letter that Amy Carter, uh, uh, Rosalind and Jimmy's daughter, read um, that he wrote to her, what, 75 years ago when he was in the Navy, saying, I can't, essentially saying, I can't, I hate being away from you. And when I see you, I realize just how much I really do love you. Yeah, I feel like my takeaway from this last week and a half of people remembering Rosalind Carter um, is they were just so big hearted and people felt that whether they knew them or not. And Greg, you and I were talking about these pictures we saw of school children along the highways of Georgia, um, uh, overpasses on rural roads, street corners, hills waving to Rosalind Carter, remembering her. They didn't know her, but yeah. they really still have a feel for what she has meant for the state. Yeah, they didn't know her. Their parents weren't even alive yeah. when, in many cases when she was first lady. Um, but she left this tremendous imprint on the state. And Patricia, what was so striking to me about the last couple of days of remembrances was that they showed that even though Rosalind Carter is really an international figure, she's also a grandmother. And they brought that home. Uh, to a lot of us, you know, she's someone who slipped $20 bills into her grandkids' uh, birthday cards, even when they were well into their middle ages, who made pimento cheese sandwiches on the plane for, for folks and who doted over her loved ones. That She's this extraordinary humanitarian figure, global leader, uh, but it's that personal touch that also made her so recognizable to people like you and me. Yeah, Bill, I was at the state house yesterday and there was not just a moment of silence for Rosalind Carter, as we would certainly expect. But two lawmakers stood up. Every lawmaker actually could have stood up, but two lawmakers stood up who knew her very well. And they talked about not just her humanitarian impact, but just kind of what a cool lady she was. Mm -hmm. And yep. she learned to ski in her 60s. Not recommended. <laughs> not recommended <laughs> for many people. She went <laughs> trout fishing in Siberia. And she said she married Jimmy Carter for a lot of reasons, but also she knew it would be an adventure. Yeah, um, and we shouldn't forget that she did the trek to base camp at Mount Everest. I don't know at what age at what age she was at at that point, but she was certainly well on her life's journey by the time she did that. We know she went trick-or-treating in the Inman Park neighborhood with, <laughs> with President Carter at one point uh, not that long ago. So I think that's just... But I think there's also something that's important to say. I mean, I I've, was very privileged that I moved here in 1983 and got to uh, cover the Carters from their post-presidency on. And I don't think we should forget that both Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter, as big-hearted as you say as they were, they were also steely in their determination to accomplish the goals that mattered to them. So they had big hearts, but they also had stiff backbones. They knew what they wanted to do.
And in their words, Bill, they were waging peace yes. around the world. And I had the good fortune of going with both the president, President Carter and Rosalind Carter to Haiti in the Dominican Republic. And we're talking, we're not, you know, this is not a big grand city. We're in Dahabon, Dominican Republic, and right across the border, right over the river uh, into Haiti. And they're there to fight uh, a horrible disease called schistosomiasis that is nearly eradicated from the planet because of their good work. They're, they're traveled all around the country, the world, I should say, to uh, observe elections and promote democracy. And it was an equal partnership. And Rosalind Carter went with, with the former president as often as she could, even when she'd admit to me, even sometimes where she, she didn't feel like going. Once she got there, she realized what, it, you know, what an honor and privilege it was to be there helping that mission. Yeah, and these three days of remembrances, I think, have really embodied the breadth of the impact that Rosalind Carter has had. So it started at Georgia Southwestern, at her Institute for Caregivers, moved up to the Carter Center, where she had such an immense impact. Um, also, we saw memories there from Habitat for Humanity, the CEO there putting a, a little hard hat on the cover, I mean, on the top of the uh, Carter Center sign. Um, the formal service included, of course, heads of state bill, Governor Brian Kemp, uh, President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, every first lady, just this huge honor. But then once it went back to Plains, it was very, very intimate. Yeah. Um, that's an intimate little town for anybody who's been down there. And uh, one of her grandchildren, maybe her, uh, it was a great, it mm -hmm. was a grandchildren, um, who said that the Secret Service were not in love with the fact that her favorite ride at Disney World was the Tower of Terror. <laughs> <laughs> but they also wore Hawaiian lays. You could see those in the photos. And uh, that was a tribute to Hawaii that meant really so much to the Carters as a couple and yeah, family. He had served uh, in, in mm -hmm. the Navy at one point, And I forget, one of the kids was... I think it was Jack. Was it Jack who was born, who was born in Hawaii? But Chip. you know, Chip. 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 Okay, thank you. Um, but, but you know, a couple other things about that, Patricia. First of all, your column uh, in which you talk to people along the motorcade route uh, to Glen Memorial is something that everybody should read mm -hmm. because you really captured how, as you point out, there are a lot of younger people on that route who really didn't know anything about Rosalind Carter. Um, and and they, they nevertheless were there with their parents, with friends. And it was a moment where they got to learn something about the history of this state and two, and two people, Rosalind particularly, who had such an enormous impact on the country and the world. So I think it was a beautiful, beautiful uh, oh, uh, column. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I just was really, I had intended to write about the funeral service, but I was just so struck by people who had never met Rosalind Carter and just some were crying on the side of the road, mm. um, just felt so connected to her. Um, really quickly, we had mentioned that uh, Chip Carter was born in Hawaii. Um, he said that he is named Chip because his birth certificate said Chip Carter. Chip is the Hawaiian word for baby. I, and that is why he is I, named Chip Carter. You know, I, I got to know Chip fairly well back in the 80s, as I said, when I covered that. And we, we have to recall that there was a time when Chip was kind of the wild child. <laughs> Something of a black sheep in the Carter family. He was always uh, running off and getting into different kinds of, uh, of minor uh, trouble. And yet, uh, I, at, at Glen Memorial, his remarks about his mother were just wonderful. Uh, Patricia, I wonder what you thought of something that happened Tuesday when Jason Carter, the former state senator, gave his eulogy, his, his remembrance of his grandmother. Because I, I just thought it was this blend of poignant memories, but also humor that really resonated with me. It sounded like it resonated with the crowd. Um, he, he, and we mentioned this earlier. He called her the cool grandmother, but what really got me was when Jason said his grandmother also didn't need a eulogy. Her life in itself was a sermon. Yeah, that just landed with so many people. That's something that Reverend Warnock had said to Jason Carter, and he's, he um, said that that's something that uh, – resonated with him mm -hmm. so much. Uh, Jason Carter's remarks also, I'm not starting rumors here, but it, it made me feel like we have not seen the last of the family business. I mean, it's just this this family is so devoted to public service, um, serving others, either through the Carter Center or through other means. And their impact, I think that's what we've seen this week, their impact is global and ongoing and living on through the acts and deeds of so many others um, here in Georgia and all around the world. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to the AJC's Politically Georgia. Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis are going to be debating each other tonight, uh, a debate hosted by Sean Hannity and Fox News. Greg, talked to Sean Hannity, and we're going to hear a little bit about that conversation in a minute. But first, Greg, I wanted to revisit our time at the legislature Wednesday, because along with redrawing the maps for the special session, the Georgia Senate also took up a resolution of support for Israel. Tell us a little bit about that and what happened. Yeah, Patricia, this was a surprise move. And it was also a shrewd political move. And I'll tell you why. Republican elected leaders in Georgia have largely unified behind their support for Israel. Well, Democrats are, are more divided. And this resolution was written in a way that would make it very, very hard for any Democrats to vote against it. It, it, it condemned the terror attacks against Israel on October 7th. It also condemned the rising tide of anti-Semitic incidents in Georgia. What it didn't do was make any mention of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza or the Palestinian civilians who have been killed in Israel's retaliatory strikes. Uh, But it also made it hard for any Democrats to say no to condemning uh, terrorist attacks and anti-Semitism. So what we saw was kind of an aborted push by Democrats to make it a unanimous resolution so they didn't have to go on the record for a roll call vote. Mm -hmm. It ended up passing unanimously 46 to zero. But that meant 10, uh, 10 mostly Democrats who either abstained or were excused from the vote. And no one spoke out against it, but certainly it was meant by Republicans to highlight that divide among Democrats that we've seen in polls, especially among younger, more diverse Democrats who are who are, who are signaling they're not supportive of U.S. policy that puts Israel at the center of national security. Which of those Democrats who abstained jumped out to you? Did anybody explain afterward why they didn't vote? Uh, there were a lot of just... Sudden absences. Okay. Um, you know, there was the resolution was introduced, it was on the desks of lawmakers just a few minutes before they voted. So I suddenly saw a handful of lawmakers uh, make their way out of the chamber. And I haven't gotten any on the record. Uh, I don't want to call anyone out because none of the, the, the five or six that I've reached out to said anything on the record, but certainly off the record, they knew. Um, and, it, and it was. This was a political move. Um, and it was, a, to many analysts, a smart one. You know, Democrats were also saying they knew what they're doing. It was a very smart move. And we'll see the same thing play out in the House, Patricia, because you were there as a similar resolution was introduced. Hasn't been voted on yet. It might be uh, either later this week or next week. Yeah, that's exactly right, Bill. There has been a very similar proposal in the House. And um, we heard actually yesterday from State Senator uh, Goodman, who had been on our program talking about um, his, being in Israel on October 7th. He spoke out in favor of that resolution. But Bill, it does feel like it's meant to put, uh, along with putting the Georgia legislature on the record supporting Israel, to put Democrats in a bit of a bind because we have seen yeah. this division on the Democratic side. Yeah, I think you said it well. On one hand, this is a legislature saying we support Israel in their war against Hamas. That's, I, I suppose many people would say it's a very positive uh, statement by the legislature. But um, this is tearing Democrats apart. Democrats who typically would support Israel in a full-throated way, who are seeing what they see as um, the destruction in Gaza and um, the civilian losses there. As Greg pointed out, our polling showed that 40% of Democrats said they did not think that the United States support for Israel was in our national interest. And this is going to affect Democrats from President Biden all the way down the ticket as the election uh, continues um, at while the war is going on. And Patricia, one person who's warned about that is State Representative Ruhl Rahman, a Democrat who's the only Palestinian-American uh, in, in, member of the Georgia legislature And here's what she told me about that resolution. Remember, she's in the House, so she didn't get to vote about it. But she said it's unconscionable that Republicans not only refuse to mention Palestinian civilians in their resolution, but are also using this moment to score political points and foment further division at the expense of Georgians grieving during this difficult time. So she 
is certainly outspoken in her opposition to resolutions like this. Yeah, somebody else who has spoken out about, in support of Israel, um, also concerned about uh, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, but also very, very worried about anti-Semitism is uh, Senator Chuck Schumer. Senate Majority Chuck Schumer gave a major speech on anti-Semitism in the Senate yesterday, and he said that something that has is really standing out to him and that is giving him concerns is that he feels like the Democrats are being split for the first time amongst themselves when they all assumed, he used the phrase, they assumed they were fellow travelers, Bill. Yeah. Uh, It was a very powerful speech. Um, And even Minority Leader Mitch McConnell sung his praises. He he said, we're told in reporting um, in in a, in a, um, a meeting after uh, the speech. He, he said, he uh, t- told Schumer, it's about time somebody spoke out about the real history of Israel and about Jews who have been oppressed in so many ways for so long. I think there's another important point that Schumer did make, though. He said, it is perfectly reasonable to have certain criticisms of Israel and not be considered anti-Semitic. And that, too, is a very contentious statement to make because there are many Jews who believe you cannot criticize Israel uh, and consider yourself uh, uh, to be pro-Jewish. And, Bill, that's the backdrop of the ongoing debate over legislation in Georgia that's still pending but stalled in the Senate earlier this year Mm -hmm. over legislation that would uh, define anti-Semitism to make it a hate crime in Georgia. And I was in this extraordinary closed-door caucus meeting yesterday where it was not meant to be a big debate about this legislation, but ended up being a big debate about this legislation between bipartisan supporters, including Esther Panitch, a Democrat, and Brent Cox, a Republican, and Senator Ed Setzler, who is perhaps the biggest Republican opponent of the legislation, where it turned into this back and forth that showed me, reminded me, that this is not going to be an easy issue to pass next year because there's still significant concerns among conservative Republicans about how this legal structure of how this legislation is is outlined. Okay, well, we're going to switch gears. That is a really complicated topic. Let's switch gears a little bit to something that's happening right here in our own backyard tonight. Greg Bluestein, it's the first presidential debate, but it's not really presidential because it is Governor uh, Gavin Newsom from California and Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who is indeed running for president. I said earlier he didn't have a chance of being president or wasn't likely to be president. He really is just struggling in the polls. Mm -hmm. We won't know exactly what happens with Ron DeSantis until all of those votes get cast, of course. But tell us how this happened. What in the world is Gavin (laughs) Newsom doing in Alpharetta? And and to a degree, Ron DeSantis. I mean, mean, we're not counting votes right now. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm really surprised that something like this is happening. Um, because a, they're not political opponents. They're not running for the same office. Gavin Newsom is is may run for president in 2028, but he is not going to be running this year, <laughs> this coming uh, election cycle, unless something um, you know significantly dramatic changes. And of course, Ron DeSantis is struggling to gain traction in the polls. But but I guess his calculus right now is that he this will help him stand out. This could be a breakthrough moment. But he also has a lot to lose if it looks like Gavin Newsom has the upper hand, especially in a hostile environment like a Fox News debate. Yeah, Gavin Newsom is very, very smooth. You know, I think he's a really, he's proven himself to be a really strong debater. I do see the very real risk for Ron DeSantis here. However, um, Bill, he does need to get some traction. He needs to get some oxygen. He needs to be talking about something besides his uh, campaign infighting and dropping poll numbers and all the money he's spent so far. He needs to change the subject and he could change the subject tonight with a good debate. It's possible because he won't have his Republican opponents on the debate stage with him to argue with him about uh, points that he tries to make. But Greg, you had an interesting quote from our friend Brian Robinson in your article. Uh, Brian Robinson said, look, this could be, as Patricia just had a big night, he he might score some points. But boy, if it goes wrong, it really goes wrong. It really goes wrong. Another, and I didn't make in the article, but another thing our friend Brian Robinson said was the fact that it's here in Metro Atlanta, it's just another example of how we're the center of the political universe. Georgia is not the meet in the middle spot between California and Florida, and yet the debate is happening in our own backyard. And it's going to be on Fox News. And tell us, Greg, how did it come to be that 
that Sean Hannity is at the center of this and inviting a Democrat to come on his show to debate a Republican. Yeah, what's really fascinating about this is Sean Hannity has this general, this genuine rapport with Gavin Newsom that I think all of us would find very surprising. But Sean Hannity told me that if it was up to Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom told him he would do it for for three hours. <laughs> Let's listen to a little bit more about what, what Sean Hannity told me. We're at a point in America where there's not a lot of room for consensus, is there? And I've been saying this in a lot of interviews. I mean, how do you find middle ground on an issue like defund the police or, or uh, reimagine the police with those that believe in old-fashioned law and order and safety and security? How do you somehow find middle ground on sanctuary state status versus, say, no, uphold the law of the land and immigration must be legal and our borders must be secure. How do you find middle ground on believing in high taxation versus no taxation in the case of income taxes between Florida and and California? And why do these two powerhouse governors have such a, a deep political divide? Bill? Okay, reality check here, Greg. <laughs> uh, one of the other things you quote Hannity is telling you in the uh, interview is, and by the way, absolutely appropriate to interview a guy who's brought together these two sure, yeah. powerful governors. But one of the things he said to you was he hopes viewers are left with a, quote, deeper understanding of the underlying philosophical differences that divide the country. And maybe that understanding can translate into something other than contempt or hatred. I don't know of anybody on television, <laughs> with the exception of Tucker Carlson, who has done more to whip up <laughs> a certain degree of hatred and contempt for the other party. And yet, I give him credit. He's bringing these two together. He's bringing them together. I don't know if they would they would both agree to do this in any other format, but you're right. Uh, he is, he, Tucker Carlson, I'm sorry, Sean Hannity and, <laughs> and, and his allies have definitely furthered the divide and have definitely taken sides over major political issues in a way that we haven't seen conventional news anchors do so. Of course, Sean Hannity got a start uh, in, in Atlanta radio way back in the 1990s, Bill. And so he has, he has roots here in, in Atlanta. Um, but I think there also is sort of a, uh, a degree that, that someone, someone like Sean Hannity, who has a rapport with, with, with both these candidates and has certainly has a genuine report, sounds like, with Gavin Newsom. He's been quoted in the LA Times and, and other California outlets as saying, hey, I, I enjoy, I relish the prospect of going on this hostile environment and kind of sharpening my edges. <laughs> And Bill, the Democrats have kind of a love-hate relationship with the idea of Gavin Newsom going out there and making the case for Democrats because it really highlights the fact that Joe Biden is not Gavin Newsom. He is not a young, dashing uh, governor with a young family. Um, He is 80 years old. Um, However, they also do think that uh, Newsom is in a position to make the case and often makes the case about the last three years of the Biden administration being a huge success, not just for Democrats, but for the country. And sometimes people tune out of a president saying that, but maybe they'll listen to Governor Newsom saying that. I think that's a really important point. Uh, We know that for whatever reason, uh, President Biden's frequent efforts to showcase his accomplishments have fallen flat, flat. Gavin Newsom, as you point out, is a dynamic, much younger, handsome leader, very articulate. I I don't know if you can do a bank shot that suddenly gives Biden more credibility. Uh, It'll be interesting to see. But I'm interested in what your thoughts are on this notion. We've seen Nikki Haley rising in the polls in Iowa. She's ahead. She's either tied or ahead in some of the Iowa polls of DeSantis. Now, she's certainly well ahead of him in New Hampshire. Do you imagine that Ron DeSantis is the kind of, in his own way, dynamic, articulate voice person who can take advantage of this tonight to advance his candidacy? Well, I think that's what we're all going to tune in to find out. I'm a little skeptical. Uh, Somebody like Nikki Haley has gotten stronger as a candidate over this presidential cycle. And I think I've said that a few times. She's somebody who has gotten kind of 
more dynamic, Greg, looser on the stump, more willing to take pointed shots at Donald Trump, whereas the more viewers have seen um, Ron DeSantis, in some cases, the less compelled they've been by him. Mm-hmm. But maybe this is just the right audience and just the right opportunity for him to have in front of that Fox News audience. That's exactly the audience that he wants to be in front of. And with Sean Hannity, who, let's face it, really is a kingmaker still in today's GOP. And with Gavin Newsom as the opponent, you know, to so many uh, conservative Republicans, this avatar of all the policies that they abhor, that they hate, right, that they loathe. Um, uh, you know, this red versus blue dynamic that Sean Hannity is setting up. But Patricia, something else I want to mention that Hannity told me, um, which is instructive here in Georgia, too, which is, this is his quote, I'd say to Republicans that they shouldn't always be picking friendly venues for these debates. Certainly Newsom's going into this hostile territory, but oftentimes we see Republicans going to, to friendly venues. We certainly saw that in last year's U.S. Senate race with Herschel Walker. And sometimes it could do well to kind of hone those uh, political muscles going into somewhere where you're not going to just get friendly questions like Gavin Newsom uh, is going to experience tonight when he's going to get a lot of hostile questions. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And Bill, I think it's also very helpful for DeSantis to be on a stage where he can be talking to a Democrat and not just trying to land punches or not land punches against his fellow Republicans. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, I still think that as I'm skeptical as you are about DeSantis's ability to win over voters in a forum like this. And I think a lot of what we're watching with Ron DeSantis is it's one thing to run a statewide race and become governor for two terms. It's a whole different matter when you get out there on the national stage. And we've all, I think, watched other candidates for president who haven't been able to understand the dynamic of a presidential race. That's exactly right. Well, stay tuned. We'll all stay tuned for that tonight. Greg, you'll be there um, there. watching it in Alfreda, and we will look for your reporting after it's all wrapped up. Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around one o'clock each day. If you like what you hear, Leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com.